0: Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour. We have three stories for you this evening. The Dominic Cummings, Laura Coonsberg BBC Tell All interview. Some pretty exciting, juicy stuff in there. We're also going to be talking about vaccine passports and Jeff Bezos going to space. I'm of course joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia?
1: I'm doing well, Michael. How are you doing?
0: I'm melting in my bedroom, but, you know, what can you do? Um, I'll I'll get to open the window when the show ends. Since leaving Downing Street, Dominic Cummings has made it his mission to undermine and even oust Boris Johnson as the UK's Prime Minister. The campaign has taken the form of tweets, blog posts, briefing to newspapers and a seven-hour session in front of a parliamentary committee. We did a a whole show on that, you might remember. it. It was really entertaining, seven hours for many people watching very, very interesting. On Tuesday night, we got the latest instalment of the Dom Cummings show. This was a one-hour primetime interview with the BBC's Laura Koonsberg. Now, perhaps to differentiate the interview from that Commons Committee briefing, which was quite technical, Laura Koonsberg tried to make this interview a bit more personal.
2: A lot of people listening to you today might just think, this is revenge. You lost influence in Downing Street. You lost the argument, you lost your job, and now you're angry, and so you're attacking.
3: It's revenge, isn't it? The reason why I'm speaking out is I want people to be thinking about these questions. How are we governed? How does power actually exercise in number 10? What sort of things should be more transparent? How should these power structures be opened up? But you could be making, Dominic Cummings, all of those points about how you
2: see Whitehall work, how you see government work, how concerned you are about structures. You could be making all of those arguments without trying to trash the reputation of other ministers, without being so personal.
3: This is also revenge, isn't it? No, it's not about revenge. It's about, it's about, and also, it doesn't matter if it's personal. It doesn't matter if people are upset. All these MPs or ministers or officials or whoever that might say, well, it's all so difficult and all so personal. We need more difficult conversations in this country. We need more people upset. A lot of people have a pop at me. But you don't see me crying about it.
0: Now, a lot of the interview w- was like that. I think Laura Koonsberg was basically trying to channel the angry public. She knows that she's doing an interview with someone who's fairly unpopular. She's always trying to say, but Dominic Cummings, don't you think you did the wrong thing? Potentially, I found that sort of slowed down some of the meatier parts, but lots of people watched it, apparently. I want to go to some of the revelations from that interview. There were some new allegations made. One of the most striking centred around an anecdote from March last year.
3: I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, i going to see the Queen. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? Of course you can't go and see the Queen. He said, uh, well, that's what, I, that's what I do every Wednesday. Sold this. I'm going to go and see her. Uh, I said, um, I really don't think you should do that. Look around this office. As we spoke, we were in the outer office just outside his study. It was basically empty, partly because people in that office, were I sleep at home with symptoms. So I said to him, there's people in this office who are isolating. You might have coronavirus, I might have coronavirus. You can't go and see the Queen. What if you give, what if you go and see her and then give the Queen coronavirus? You obviously you can't go.
2: So the possibility went through your head at that moment that the prime minister might pass coronavirus to the Queen?
3: Yes. How did you persuade him not to do it? I just said, if you go and you give a coronavirus and she dies, what what are you gonna? You can't do that. You can't risk that. It's completely insane. And he said, he almost basically just had not thought it through. And he said, "Yeah, holy shit, I can't go."
2: Downing Street says that that didn't happen. What do you say did to that?
3: Them? Well, they've officially said that on the um, that that didn't Well, I know it happened, and other people who were there know it happened.
0: Now, people often joke about Boris Johnson. You know, he can do anything. His decisions have been responsible for countless, tens of thousands of deaths that didn't need to happen. He lies constantly. He clearly doesn't care that much about his job, but he's still always, it seems, 10 points ahead in the polls. Dahlia, do you think if he had accidentally killed the Queen, would Teflon Boris Johnson have survived killing the monarch?
1: This entire interview was like, The equivalent of that scene in Mean Girls where Regina George just like scatters the photocopies of the Burn book all over the hallway. And then everyone's like screaming and crying. And I can imagine that's kind of what Downing Street looks like right now. Some sort of Othello meets Mean Girls, like comedy tragedy. And, you know, if there, if there weren't thousands of lives at stake, then, you know, I I'd be watching it with popcorn and enjoying the right sort of tear itself apart. But Unfortunately, you know, there are and continues to be many lives at stake. So it's not even funny, but it, it's really hard to say, actually, whether this will make a dent in Tory hegemony. That depends on whether or not the opposition and the media make a big enough deal of it, right? And on whether or not the public trust Dominic Cummings. You know, as you as you mentioned, he's he's not generally a trustworthy person you know we know that he is willing to essentially lie to save his reputation to promote his his brand but I think that on this particular occasion his own personal gain happens to align with the truth and you know because let's be clear he's coming out with all of this I think you know because he's pissed pissed off that he got shafted you know he's had he not been he would still be you know up in number 10 enjoying his proximity to power. So, you know, it's important that we don't sort of accidentally enable his self-proposition as like speaking truth to power. I think it's more that despite Cummings being untrustworthy, we can believe that what he what he is saying right now, because what he is describing completely aligns with the reality that we all lived through, that we all witnessed in 2020 and in this year as well. You know, the kind of ideological framework, the priorities, the dismissive way in which you know Boris Johnson talks about people dying, the dismissiveness of public health officials, public health expertise that is the exact scenario that would produce the outputs that we have, which is that you know the uk has you know, a really, really high death rate proportional to its population size. So, you know, if those connections are being made by the public, you know, what what Dominic Cummings is describing and the reality that they are seeing, then, of course, you know, it's it's incredibly damaging. But at the same time, you know, when you look at the front pages of the newspapers today, no, you know, we see really scarce mention of the interview and and where it is mentioned, it's not in a way that directly implicates the prime minister or in a way that kind of makes these connections and talks about what the prime minister is being accused of here. Instead, it just sort of focuses on that personal angle of, you know, coming this being just Cummings' power play or, you know, this being about... Cummings being disloyal. And, you know, as much as I think that this is probably partly motivated by him being pissed off that he's no longer in the sort of inner ring of power, the bigger story here is that the reality that he is describing has matched with not only, you know, other accounts that we've heard, but the very reality that we've all experienced. But instead, it's being kind of metabolized as just Westminster gossip in a way that generally leaves... Boris Johnson pretty unscathed. So given that, it's, you know, it, it's, no, it, it's no wonder that, you know, no matter how much evidence we have that government mismanagement of the pandemic is the reason why we have such a huge death toll, such a huge uh, case rate. The message isn't really getting through because the public is not being encouraged to focus on that part of the story. They're not being encouraged to make those connections. And so it's not culminating in accountability Of that very government you know the interview was of course significant but in many ways it didn't tell us much that we didn't already know and it didn't fix our broken media system and our broken opposition so until that's done uh we're not going to see the accountability that we sort of desperately need right now
0: no I, i totally agree with your point in terms of maybe this is take him taking revenge but you know who cares it's actually one of the strong points that, that Dominic Cummings made in that interview. She said, is this personal? He said, who cares if it's personal? Maybe it's personal, but I'm going to tell you a lot of information. You want to report it? As you say, it's those policy decisions that have cost lives, those policy decisions that have had the most concrete material impact on so many people in this country. And while much of the ground that was covered re-COVID in the interview went over territory which we'd already seen in in the select committee hearing, and which we've talked about at length at length on the on this show. So I don't want to go over it in in too much detail. But what I quite liked about this interview was that it focused more on the period September and October twenty twenty than it did in March twenty twenty. Now, from my perspective, March twenty twenty that was system failure. The reason Britain had such a high death toll there was. One, yes, Boris Johnson wasn't a good Prime Minister to be in that place at that time, but also he was getting scientific advice that wasn't correct at that point in time. The second half of the year, all totally Boris Johnson's fault. The scientific advice at that point was essentially correct. He was ignoring it. And in this interview, the clip I'm going to show you is Cummings explaining those circumstances in which Boris Johnson was ignoring the scientific, the scientific advice. In At this moment in time, it was the advice to introduce a circuit-breaker mini-lockdown.
2: To be completely clear about what you're saying, that by the middle of September, you, Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance, other people in the government are trying to push Boris Johnson to bring back restrictions, and you're saying
3: he was refusing? Essentially, yes. It was was because a combination of um, Starmer had said it should happen, and therefore Prime Minister felt it would be politically disastrous for him just to suddenly admit that Starmer had been right, Secondly, he had a bunch of Tory MPs screaming at him. Remember, some of those Tory MPs, similar to the ones on Brexit, had lost their minds and were saying all kinds of complete fake news about COVID. And third, he had the Telegraph, who he always referred to as his, quote, my real boss, unquote. So he had those three things all saying, pushing him not to act. Sorry, the Prime Minister calls the Telegraph his real boss, you yes. just said. And the Telegraph, happened? of course, was extremely hostile to, to, to doing anything.
2: So are you suggesting that the Prime Minister of this country calls the Telegraph newspaper that he used to be a columnist for, he calls them his real boss?
3: Correct. It's a joke? It's often not to tell the Prime Minister quite how much of what is a joke. But what he should have done is listened to the advice from the data people at that point and acted. He shouldn't have been listening to a bunch of pundits in the Daily Telegraph talking nonsense
0: the biggest crime of of Boris Johnson's premiership, and, and there are many, which was that decision in September, in October, to completely ignore all of the scientific advice and to say, oh, no, I'm more interested in pleasing my backbenchers. I'm more interested in pleasing people at The Telegraph. And that's why he ignored everything. That's why he went for the Great Barrington Declaration idea that we can just forget about COVID, let it spread. Lockdowns were a mistake. Obviously, what I would have liked to have seen... Laura Koonsberg challenged Dominic Cummings on there is the role of Rishi Sunak here. We know that in September, scientists were invited into 10 Downing Street. Two of them, Sunetra Gupta and Carl Hennigan, were there to basically tell Boris Johnson, oh, ignore SAGE. Um, We should go for herd immunity. They're often published in The Telegraph, by the way. Apparently, Sunak had a big role to play in them being at Downing Street at that point in time. I would have preferred Laura Koonsberg to grill Dominic Cummings about that than about whether or not this is just revenge and he's he's angry. But there you go. This is what I think should be the most damaging um, about Boris Johnson, the irresponsibility here, the lack of, I suppose, any commitment to public duty whereby what he cared about more was people patting him on the back than saving anyone's lives. Related to that moment is another... Um, allegation that was made in this interview, which is what many people think will end up being the most damaging um, part of that discussion with Dominic Cummings.
3: His attitude at that point was a weird mix of um, partly, it's all nonsense and lockdowns don't work anyway. And partly, well, this is terrible, but the people who are dying are essentially all over 80 and we can't kill the economy just because of people dying over 80.
2: It's a very serious claim to make. What evidence do you have of that?
3: Well, lots of people heard the prime minister say that. The prime minister texted that to me and other people. Um, you know, when the inquiry happens and everyone has to give evidence under oath, like other things that I've said to you today, uh, you know, this is not just me saying this. Many, many people will say under oath to the public inquiry, if and when that ever happens, that what I've said today is true.
0: When people ask Dominic Cummings for evidence, he often refers to that. So said, a lot of people who back me up in a public inquiry, it does leave you to wonder whether he's got some very close mates who are in on it, who are willing to, to tell the story as he remembers it. But in this case, Dominic Cummings has provided the evidence so we don't have to wait for this future public inquiry this is a text from Boris Johnson to Dominic Cummings from the 15th of October Boris Johnson says I must say I have been slightly rocked by some of the data on Covid fatalities the median age is 82 to 81 for men and 85 for women that is above life expectancy so get Covid and live longer Hardly anyone under 60 goes into hospital, 4%, and virtually all of those survive, and I no longer buy all this NHS overwhelm stuff. Folks, I think we may need to recalibrate. Everything about that message is fucked up. Every part of it. So the first part of it, which is what is most shocking and which is what made some headlines on, on Tuesday, because the BBC released this story on, on, on Monday night, was this idea of saying people are, only, people are 82 and 85, so it doesn't really matter. Now, one, as we spoke about during that first wave, when there were lots of people saying, well, this is just old people anyway, does it matter? We talked about how even if some of these people were going to die soon anyway, this was people dying somewhere where their family couldn't visit. They're struggling for breath. There aren't enough hospital beds. You know, it really, really... You know, not a particularly pleasant way to to go, but also this idea that COVID only kills old people or only kills people who are going to die anyway—it's it, not—it's not true. A statistician, David Spiegelhalter, he's probably one of the most respected statisticians in the country. He tweeted in response to the leaking of of this message. Did anyone explain to him that a disease like COVID that multiplies everyone's risk of death by a similar amount will leave average age of death unchanged, but still be very nasty? Now, that's a super interesting point that I actually hadn't thought of previously. He's saying essentially what COVID does is it multiplies everyone's risk of death by the same amount. So, say, it doubles your risk of death in a year. I'm This is a hypothetical number. That means it doubles my risk of death. It also doubles the risk of death of an 80 year old. That means more 80 year olds are going to die, but it's a huge risk to all of us. And as he said, it still gets incredibly nasty. The other claims there the NHS was never overwhelmed. He doesn't buy it. Now, there is a backlog of 5.5 million elective surgeries now because of the strain on the NHS of COVID 19. You have NHS staff on the verge of quitting from stress. They've been working more hours than ever in tougher conditions than ever risking their own health and we know even though the government officially deny it that many people died because they didn't get the care they otherwise would have received because hospitals were having to do triage that means if someone doesn't seem if if it doesn't seem like there's a very high chance that that person is going to survive then you don't take the risk of filling an ICU bed in ordinary times you might well send them to ICU so it is not the case that the NHS was not overwhelmed. This is a completely ridiculous thing to say. Finally, folks, I think we may need to calibrate this. He's essentially saying we need to take a whole new strategy, dump the lockdowns, let's go for the Great Barrington Declaration and uh, let COVID rip through the population. And that was, I mean, a policy that we had on and off and on and off until January. In terms of the, the leaked text we've seen so far, this is probably, I think, the most, the most disgusting, actually.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because it 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 really communicates to me the profound ignorance here. Like and, and one thing about ignorance is that, you know, you often ignorant people often don't know how ignorant they are. And that's incredibly concerning because if he genuinely believed what he was saying, we should be so worried because this is someone who let's let's not forget that this isn't a historic event you know this isn 't something that has now been wrapped up, and we can reflect on the implications of this. We are still in the midst of this, we are still in the the throes of this pandemic, and this is someone who believes that he knows better than literal public health experts and literal epidemic you know pandemic experts who will have been telling him at this time who would have been telling him the exact opposite of what he 's saying right now. And, you know, he believes that he knows better than those experts, even though, frankly, I I don't think he knows better than the average person, because I don't think the average person would say something so absurd and so ignorant. But for me, what really, really took my breath away was the, you know, the statement, I, I no longer buy the NHS being overwhelmed. Him saying that really tells me that he didn't have a single frank conversation with anyone working on a COVID ward. Anyone who has a loved one working as a nurse, as a doctor on a COVID ward at that time will have told you that the system was overwhelmed. It was at breaking point. It made me actually think of earlier this year when we had Silas Webb on, who was an A&E doctor working on the COVID wards. And his testimony, you know, and he also sort of brought the testimonies of some of his colleagues as well. His testimony of what it was like to work on those wards—it moved me, and I presume many other viewers to tears. You know, when he talked about not being able to give people the adequate standard of care—you know, the standard of care that I'm sure would pale in in comparison to the standard of care that Boris Johnson himself received when he went down with COVID. He talked about, you know, Silas talked about the mental health impacts, the trauma of having people die on him who didn't need to die. Um, who he could have saved, but couldn't because there simply weren't enough staff members and resources per patient. You know, when when we talk about, and that's on top of, you know, that mental health risk, that trauma is on top of the physical risk that, you know, medical uh, workers were being exposed to, that healthcare workers were being exposed to. Like when we talk about the NHS being overwhelmed, or, you know, the NHS being, the NHS collapsing, we don't mean that, you know, one day you're going to wake up and you know there won't be an nhs anymore or you know all the buildings will have turned into rubble what we mean is that the nhs will no longer be able to function as an nhs it will no longer be able to give the basic standard of care to everyone that we could expect from a health service in 2021 you know, it's it's full of overworked and underpaid staff who, who can't sustainably continue to work. It's not providing the standard of care that it, it is capable of because it doesn't have the resources to actually give that standard of care. And, you know, the very nurse that treated Boris Johnson quit earlier this year. And she quit because she said that, her and all her colleagues, other nurses, for the amount of work and the amount of personal toll that was going into working on these COVID wards, they weren't getting the respect and the pay and the working conditions that that they deserve. So to have these healthcare professionals witnessing. That, those kind of conditions in their workplaces. And then to know that at that time, their prime minister was so cavalierly dismissing, you know, and not, you know, saying that he doesn't buy their concerns. Like, it's devastating. Like, it is a new low. And the fact that we don't have a healthy media or opposition to adequately take the government to task on that, it's almost as big of a violation as, you know, what Boris Johnson himself is doing.
0: Why do you think the BBC is allowing Dominic Cummings to air his views just now? Who gains and who loses? I think on the most basic level, you know, it's clearly of political interest. If a former special advisor wants to speak out, if they're a former special chief advisor or whatever, Alistair Campbell, you know, they would have done an interview with him after he quit with with, with Tony Blair. So I think basically if Dominic Cummings wants to be interviewed, any outlet is going to be willing to do it. Who gains and who loses? I mean, in a way, it depends what form these interviews take. So as I say, I think this one focused too much actually on the morality of Dominic Cummings and the morality of, of, of Boris Johnson. And it was too much about this personal drama. I saw some pundits, such as Tom Newton-Dunn, who's from um, now Times Radio actually, sort of say, ah, oh, yeah, Laura Koonsberg did a, a great job to show the egoism of Dominic Cummings. And it's sort of like, is that really the most interesting thing that came out of that, that interview? So I think there are lots of people in that Westminster establishment, lots of people in number 10 who really hope This stays just a a story about this sort of interpersonal drama between two people at war. Because so long as the public see it as that, I mean, we don't have skin in this game. We'll we'll stand back. So uh, unless they focus on how those decisions were made and how those decisions cost lives, I I think it's probably going to be a stalemate in terms of who gains and who loses. Dominic Cummings clearly does want some attention. He also has some interesting things to say. We have just one more clip for you about the COVID section of that interview. Um, I'm gonna show you this just because it makes me particularly nervous given the moment we are in right now.
2: Do you think Boris Johnson was therefore
3: putting politics ahead of people's lives? Certainly he did. He put his own political interests ahead of people's lives for sure. That's a very serious accusation to make. Yes, but lots of people were in the room and saw the same as, same as what I saw. That's That's why I've argued so strongly for why I think that MPs should take matters into their own hands and insist on an inquiry into all of this now.
0: Well, again, not telling us anything we don't know, but the reason hearing it repeated worries me is because we are again actually in a situation where Boris Johnson is listening more to Telegraph writers and to his backbenchers than he is to scientific advisors. None of the scientific advisors are backing his decision to take away masks on trains and other scientific advisors are backing his decision to encourage people to go back in, into work. These are all things to please his Tory backbenchers and to please the Telegraph. And what happened the last time he chose that group of right-wing nut jobs over the scientific advisors, it was really, really bad. So I, I am pretty nervous about what is going to happen. Now, moving on from COVID, because there were some other interesting topics covered, we have just two more clips from that interview for you. Now, both relate to the relationship between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, and in particular, Cummings' role in making Johnson Prime Minister. Um, If
2: you felt he wasn't up to it, as you clearly did, why on earth then was it the right thing to push him to be
3: Prime Minister? Why was that the right thing to do? There are um, many, many people I know personally, who I'd much prefer to see in number 10. But those that wasn't a practical possibility for me. I also thought that precisely because Boris knows that in lots of ways, he obviously shouldn't be prime minister. He knows that he needs help. He knows that he needs to bring in various people to help him. That also provides an opportunity to push the country in a much more positive direction.
2: What you're saying, he was so useless that you were unable to get him to do what you wanted.
3: I mean, partly, yes. Or that that he didn't know what he was doing, but he did know that he needed help.
2: Can you hear yourself say that? That the man that's prime minister, who's been chosen by the Tory party, and then was elected by the voting public. Well, it was great for me because he was so useless in some ways in your view that it meant that you could get him to do what you wanted.
3: Well, I think it's terrible for the country, but but, uh, I keep trying to stress you've got to balance up the the different possibilities. Is that objectively a good thing for the country? No, it's objectively, obviously ludicrous. That's why I've made the argument repeatedly for all kinds of political change and and why actually it was a difficult decision in summer 19. A lot of, uh, we spent a lot of time calculating, maybe we should just let the Conservative Party go down the toilet. Maybe that would be the best way out because then it could rebuild something new. Because why are we in the situation with this Terrible choice between 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 Johnson and and and, and Corbyn. but from a practical matter, all our options were bad, right? So it's like which is the least bad option? Well, the least bad option seemed to be exploit the current situation to try and push certain things through and get the country into a better better position. Who's Here, the us? Office. Who's we? Well, Who? me and a network of people that. Of some of us who did the Vote Leave campaign, some of us who did other things. How
2: many of you? You make it send this kind of secretive clique? Who? I mean, it's, um, Half a dozen? A dozen?
3: A few dozen, maybe.
0: That was the longest clip we're going to show you because I think that was actually a really extraordinary bit of television. Basically, Dominic Cummings saying he and a coterie of, of 12 or, or 24 people intentionally used Boris Johnson as a puppet to try and achieve their ends, their aims in government. You know, there often are small groups of people who say, let's use this political party to get into government and, and do what we want to do. I mean, New Labour, they had a group of people, 12 or 24 people who were really in the know who were really shaping things. Thatcher had a similar thing around her. Yeah. What's unique here is that Boris Johnson isn't part of it, right? So, so there's this, this this group of people who have these aims, these instrumental goals, they're using the Prime Minister, who's, who's completely not abreast of any of this, to achieve their ends. What I would have liked, again, Laura Koonsberg, to go into a bit more deeply here, is what they wanted. Because, you know, what Cummings is explaining that, it's a very instrumental logic. We had this aim, which was to try and influence government to achieve these goals. What were the goals? What united that dozen or two dozen people, right? He says they were together in Vote Leave. Now, Vote Leave, as we know, was a pretty incoherent, group of people. It's people who wanted to control migration, people who wanted to take back powers from from Europe. What did they want to do with that? And, and for me, that is the big unanswered question with Dominic Cummings. What he speaks about is things like pro- procurement reform. It Was this 12 or 24 people so motivated in the public interest to basically take over the top of one of Britain's political parties to implement procurement reform? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't add up to me. That that's what I would have liked to have seen grilled into it. Lots of people saying this is incredibly undemocratic. On one level, I do think that I think it's clearly risky having a prime minister who doesn't have any you know sense of moral purpose him, himself. At the same time, I do think you know you do elect a prime minister to select their advisors. So I don't necessarily find th- this idea that advisors have influence as shadowy as some others do. We're going to show you one. Final clip from that interview. Again, this one is quite astonishing. This is Dominic Cummings speaking about how the row with Carrie Simons meant he considered toppling the Prime Minister.
3: Literally immediately after the election, it was already clear that this was a problem. Before even mid-January, we were having meetings in Number 10 saying, it's clear that Carrie wants rid of all of us. At that point, we were already saying that by the summer... Either we'll all have gone from here or we'll be in the process of trying to get rid of him and get someone else in as Prime Minister. But you've just said that within months
2: of the Prime Minister winning the biggest Conservative majority in decades, you and a few others from the Vote Leave campaign were discussing the possibility of getting rid of him. Days, not months. Within
3: days of the election, you were discussing getting rid of him. Yes. Well, for all the reasons we've been discussing... He doesn't have a plan. He doesn't know how to be prime minister. And we'd only got him in there because we had to solve a certain problem, not because we thought that he was the right person to run in the country. Well, what kind of con had
2: you just pulled off on the British public then, if that's really what you think?
3: Well, it's not, I don't think it's a con. It's We try to solve very hard problems in the order that we can solve them in.
2: There's nothing wrong with running an election campaign, presenting one thing to the public, saying he's the guy for the job, and then days after the result comes through, you then, unelected officials inside government discussing getting rid of him.
0: That's okay. Well, that's, I'd say that's politics. Probably the main response to this on, on Twitter and the one that Laura Koonsberg is getting at is how undemocratic this seems. There was a coup being plotted from one of the prime minister's own advisors. At the same time, I kind of feel like you know, there's a lot of faux surprise there from Laura Koonsberg because this this is politics. And I do kind of feel like there is a bit of a liberal ideology portrayed by especially people like Laura Koonsberg, where politics is about people who choose their guy who they really want to make prime minister because they think they are a good person instead of loads of people with their own interests, who have their own political projects, who are essentially using each other. It's not the gentlemanly game that Laura Coonsby wants to pretend it is. So in a way, Dominic Cummings is just unmasking what politics is always like. Although saying that, actually, normally an advisor has more respect for their principle than Dominic Cummings does in, in, in this respect. I don't think Peter Mandelson would have said that about Tony Blair. What did you make of, of that clip, that revelation that Cummings considered getting rid of Boris Johnson within days?
1: I mean, it absolutely is politics. And Laura Koonsberg knows it's politics. Everyone who's, you know, not even just within the political world, but, you know, those who orbit it for whatever reason, you know, people who go to these elite schools that basically act as sort of training grounds to become politicians or to become people who influence politicians, you know, all of these institutions that kind of satellite government, everyone in those institutions you know media as well is included in that knows exactly how this works none of this would have been a surprise to them I think the shock comes at you know you're just sort of saying this um, and I have to kind of act shocked in order to kind of maintain the appearance of integrity in my job I have to say one of my favorite Dominic Cummings revelations was when he essentially revealed that Laura Koonsberg's you know highly you know investigative sources were actually her whatsapp chat with Dominic cummings and then Mm. laura kundberg suspiciously stops tweeting the committee hearing this is something that is well known amongst those who hobnob with the powerful i think that a lot of the british public know it as well instinctively even if they are sort of you know made to feel like that would be such a uh, an abs- a- absurd thing to think, or a conspiratorial thing thing to think, but I think most people do have a kind of gut instinct that what they say isn't what necessarily goes. Uh, and I think that what this pa- this pandemic has also really exposed is sort of the the influence of you know private companies. You know the the way that we've seen this pandemic basically be used and and perceived of as some giant money making outsourcing drive where people who own all these companies that are, you know, either close friends with people in government or places where people in government expect to go and work when their political career is over, uh, that, you know, the the, the fluidity between them. And, and crises usually kind of show these connections. Grenfell did the same. But I think the pandemic did it in such a kind of uh, all-encompassing way that we saw that this really was not a bug. Uh, it's the feature that these kind of, non-democratically accountable figures and institutions hold much more sway on what the government actually does than the public that, that did elect them and put them into power.
0: That's a, a good place to end the Cummings-Kunsberg discussion. We are now going to take a very short break for some quick news about Navarra Media. We'll be back in one moment to talk about space billionaires and vaccine passports.
4: Let me ask you a question. What were you doing 10 years ago?
0: Here's what I was doing.
4: Give me a guaranteed minimum income, abolish tuition fees, scrap all fucking debts everywhere. 20% <laughs>
5: well, come you come you 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 VAT, come on, uh, you're being I fleeced. Think
4: think Sit down and sure get it, these uh, guys uh, to pay their tax uh, instead. You see, I met this guy called James. Tall, very blue eyes, very smart. And we started thrashing out our ideas each week from a community radio station in South London. That was how Navarra Media started. And with the help of our supporters, we've expanded from something of a two-man band to a team of dedicated staffers. If you're watching this video, the chances are you've been a part of that journey, and we hope we've been a part of yours too. Whether you've been a listener since the old days, a tisky sour fanatic, or you just shared the occasional article, if Navarro Media is a taller part of your life, thank you.
1: But here's the thing, we want to go even further. And to do that, we need your support.
4: Unlike legacy media outlets, we are funded almost entirely by you. And that's the way we like it. It keeps us independent. It means we're not beholden to vested interests.
1: It means we can stay focused on our mission to build a new media for a different politics. That's why over the next fortnight, we're trying to increase our monthly income by 8,000 pounds a month.
4: If you're not already a Navara Media supporter, head to navaramediacom support and set up a monthly donation now.
1: If you're already a supporter, we're asking you to increase your donation by just a few quid a month.
4: If the last 10 years have taught us anything, it's that we can't have the different politics without a new media.
1: That's why we're in this for the
2: long haul. Are you with us?
0: That's right. Navarro Media has been around for 10 years and we are only getting bigger and bigger i mean we are so so pleased to have been around for so long and of course are so appreciative of your kind support it has only been possible because of regular donors and because of people who put money in the super chats and we 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 do just feel so privileged that that we we are now a sustainable organization in a place where we can continue to grow because well gb news might be failing but you know it won't necessarily fail forever. We do need to get organised when it comes to fighting these battles. Um, a very relevant um, comment here. Shalendra Singh with £10 says, congratulations on completing 10 years of making a difference. In particular, kudos to Aaron and James for their drive and vision for founding Navara. Here's to the next 10. I could not um, agree with you more there. Kudos to Aaron and James for, for starting this 10 years ago. I'm so glad they started that podcast during the student movement. Let's go straight to our next story. One of the surprise announcements from the government on Monday's so-called Freedom Day was that vaccine passports would be made mandatory for entry to clubs from the end of September. Now, the announcement follows the government suggesting they had ruled out the idea of vaccine passports. It also runs counter to many past statements from the Prime Minister. Starmer brought up those inconsistencies at Prime Minister's questions. Why is
3: it okay to go for it, to go to a nightclub for the next six weeks without proof of a vaccine or a test, and then from September it will only be okay to get into a nightclub if you've got a vaccine ID card?
5: Hey, Minister, Mr. Speaker, I think the the Labour leader traditionally has a choice in a national crisis, and that is whether to uh, get behind the government and uh, to be or to offer constructive opposition, or to try endlessly to oppose for the sake of for the sake of it to try to score cheap uh, political points. Everybody can see that we have to wait until uh, the end of September, by which time it's only fair to the younger generation when they will all have been offered uh, two jabs before we consider something like asking people to be double-jabbed before they go into a a nightclub. That's blindingly obvious uh, to everybody. It's common sense. And uh, I think most people in this country understand it. Most people in this country want to see the younger generation encouraged uh, to get vaccinations. That is what, uh, with great respect to the right honourable gentleman, uh, he should be doing rather than trying endlessly uh, to score what, what I think are vacuous political points.
0: Following PMQs, Labour announced they would be voting against the introduction of vaccine passports for nightclubs, a Labour spokesperson said. We oppose the use of COVID vaccination status for everyday access to venues and services. It's costly, open to fraud and is impractical. Being double jabbed doesn't prove you aren't carrying the virus. Testing for access to venues would be more efficient and would give people and businesses more certainty that position from Labour could be very consequential. There are already 42 Tories who have indicated that they will vote against vaccine passports and the Lib Dems have said they will do the same. That vote is expected to take place after the summer recess. So that's in September. Presumably, you know, that vote will happen, have to happen early in September so that it can be implemented by late September. Dahlia, have Labour here made the right decision?
1: Vaccine passports are a bad and uh, unnecessary idea you know they're bad because it sets the stage for a huge infrastructure of data collection of data storage of tracking that leaves us extremely vulnerable to an even more empowered you know big tech sector big tech industry especially the linking of health data to to identity has sort of particularly worrying consequences when it comes to you know surveillance Uh, privacy and and the unaccountability and the lack of transparency of, you know, private corporate big tech power. What basically a vaccine database would essentially do is create this huge centralized database that tracks where everyone has gone um, at all times, you know, what services they're using. You know, that's extremely rich and empowering data. You know, whoever holds that data and has access to that data has a huge amount of power. And the idea that once we've sort of started down that road, that we'll be able to control where it goes, especially if it's in the, in the hands of private companies, is inc- is, is kind of laughable. Um, you know, and I think it's very different as much as, you know, privacy concerns around the track and trace app are really important. This is a much further along step because the the track and trace app didn't track location. It didn't track where you were. It didn't connect your kind of track and trace identity to other more, you know, your biometrics or your health data. It tracked connections, which, you know, has its own issues, but it's, you know, that there's a, a gulf between those two different kinds of data collection. And, you know, not only are data leaks possible, but, There are severe implications there of, you know, this data being potentially shared with the police, shared with the home office, with private corporations who will do with that data what they will. Um, And it will also re-entrench existing inequalities because, you know, we already have this issue of essentially vaccine passports already being in place for international travel, where it's just done in a way where the mobility of people from the global south is going to be you know, many of whom are not vaccinated. And if they are vaccinated, it's with, you know, the Russian or the Chinese vaccine, which is not recognized uh, as legitimate by some uh, by some Northern American and European countries. And, you know, obviously, the reason that the global South is in that position is because big pharma have patented the technology so that they can't be reproduced cheaply, and Europe and the US have bought up a load of the vaccine supply, so they couldn't be fairly distributed. So there's already an, a problem of inequality of mobility, um, as movement to the north from the south is going to be policed and managed and reduced through what is essentially, like I said, already a vaccine passport system. But a vaccine, an actual vaccine passport system, would already further entrench that. You know, black minority ethnic communities are less likely to be vaccinated due to legitimate historic distrust of healthcare institutions. And sort of there are so many implications there as well, especially, you know, the idea, I think Michael Gove said something like, oh, you know, this definitely won't happen in the UK because, you know, the UK is not a paper carrying country. And I would say, ask that to any migrant that has tried to live in this country and get basic services since the introduction of the hostile environment. This idea of having to produce documentation in order to access service provision, although it doesn't go quite as far as you know, hospitality and bars, but you know to access basic service provision, that is a reality for many uh, migrants already living in this country. But I also think it's really not necessary. Like It's really crucial to look at who is actually pushing for this. It's not public health officials. The World Health Organization actually advises against vaccine passports. The the, the institutions that are calling for this are big tech and, you know, increasingly authoritarian governments, kind of like our own, who are, you know, despite saying that there's no plans for vaccine passports, are kind of actually on the side funding pilot schemes for vaccine passports. So they're sort of saying one thing and doing another, which doesn't help with the whole trust issue, but the reason that they're desperate to pose this as a solution is because they are seeing big money signs. They are seeing this as, you know, building an, an infrastructure, an opportunity for a big, juicy data grab-, grab through building infrastructures of surveillance and data tracking that would have been unimaginable under any other circumstances. You know, we know that, that big companies, that governments use crises in order to force through systems and changes that would have been unacceptable. Otherwise, you know, we've all read Naomi Klein, we've all read the shock doctrine, and I'm afraid that that's what we're seeing here. You know, there are so many other measures that we could implement that would manage this virus um, before getting anywhere near this extreme of measure. Things like continuing the public mandate of masks with like clear public health messaging and clear Uh, enforcement, things like suspending intellectual property laws that stop Global South countries from making and distributing their own vaccines, making a single effective vaccine widely available to everyone, supporting people who need to self-isolate from work. But those policies don't benefit big tech. They, They don't benefit big pharma. So instead, we're going for these incredibly elaborate and risky and highly problematic solutions And bypassing the very easy ones that actually could kind of help us, uh, you know, get, you know, help us equalize society rather than further entrench existing inequalities. And those solutions are kind of right in front of us.
0: I've kind of changed my position on on vaccine passports because I thought earlier it probably wouldn't be necessary because I thought by the time you'd, you'd rolled them out, we'd have herd immunity anyway. So it'd be a bit of a moot point. What's happened since then is a Delta variant came along. And because it's so transmissible, actually, we would need something like 96% of the population to be vaccinated for us to have herd immunity. So it's probably never going to happen. That's from Adam Kucharski. He's uh, a modeler um, who's on SPY-M, the modelling group that advises SAGE. So I do think we are going to have flare-ups of of COVID, probably indefinitely. It's going to become endemic. We might have super vaccines that, that mean that we can overcome that eventually. Um, in a few years' time. But I think this winter is going to be quite grim. I think there are going to be quite a lot of calls to close nightclubs, close social events. And to be honest, this seems to me something that could quite possibly keep those clubs open. And I kind of disagree that this will be necessarily this dystopian thing where loads of data is collected because there is already a vaccine passport. It's the NHS app. If you get your passport, you can, sorry, if you get your, your second vaccine, you can plug that into your NHS app. Or you can register a lateral flow test in the NHS app and then you show it to a nightclub. It's already being implemented in, in some nightclubs, just a, a minority of them. So I, I don't really get the dystopian angle. The nightclub doesn't register the person. They just look at your app. The app tells you or tells your tells the nightclub that you've been vaccinated. And this data is already stored on the NHS database. They know exactly who was vaccinated and, and when. That's why when you go to get your vaccine, they, they type you in. And that's on the NHS app. So I I don't quite understand all the fear about it. And for me, if one thing can make going out and having fun possible and safe during this winter, or it's never going to be completely safe, by the way, make it safer than it otherwise would have been. I, I don't think the counter arguments are strong enough to dissuade me from thinking that's probably necessary, right? What do you make of those points?
1: the problem with the vaccine passport is that there is more space for a stringent relationship between your health data and your actual personal identity and also i'm not sure that it is actually as effective because in israel we have been seeing you know i mean there's a whole issue with israel's vaccination program that they're not actually vaccinating everyone that's in the country um but you know with a high vaccination rate using these they had like you know these green passes so that you know, nightclubs and bars, et cetera, would would only have, they would have vaccinated people indoors. And if you weren't vaccinated, if you didn't have a green card, you would have to sit outside or you wouldn't be allowed in. And we're still in a situation where, you know, they are having to go back into a lockdown because it hasn't actually curbed it as much as we might think. And I think that, like I sort of mentioned before, before we kind of get to these Uh, forms of data collection and data storage, which, you know, the question is, who's going to design that? Who's going to own that? How is it going to be protected? You know, I think that there are, you know, many concerns about the, the track and trace app as well. But, you know, the track and trace app would not be as invasive as I think what is being provided, what is being proposed here. The question is, you know, first of all what kind of infrastructure and what kind of system are we building and how can that be used in the future but also there are so many stages that we could actually implement before we get to that point and it feels like we're going straight to the most risky the most problematic and sort you know solution rather than sort of catching that low hanging fruit at the bottom which we know from the management of pandemics the management of viruses in the past before any of this technology would have been available, were adequately managed. So I think it, it feels like the motive is somewhat different because we aren't we're having governments that are pursuing these solutions. And, you know, big tech that are trying to sell these solutions to public health advocates and public health experts who aren't convinced of their necessity, uh, given the risks. Um, instead of actually focusing our resources and pushing for the the more simple but more equalising solutions that are right in front of us.
0: In terms of the Israel example, they they stopped using their Green Pass system in June because they thought mission accomplished. And now they've had some outbreaks and now they're meeting to discuss whether to bring it back. So I'm not sure that point stands. But also it's worth saying, even with a vaccine passport, you would still get outbreaks in nightclubs so I, i'm not i'm not suggesting that if you bring in vaccine passports you won't get any outbreaks in nightclubs. I just think you're quite likely you get less less outbreaks in in nightclubs and given this winter is going to be about trying to control the size of outbreaks, especially when we're also having flu at the same time and hospitals are under pressure. I think anything that keeps those institutions open go for it I, I also just don't you know, we do have the infrastructure for this already. It's the NHS app. Most people that go to nightclubs have a smartphone. I think you'd get into much bigger problems if this were introduced in in pubs, for example, because lots of people go to pubs who don't have smartphones. But when it comes to nightclubs, I think the overwhelming majority of people there are going to be quite used to showing someone a document before they go in, which is normally just your your photo ID to prove your age. So, so for me, it, it doesn't seem that big a deal, but we probably shouldn't debate this all night. So we will... Come back to it later, Dali, Do you want to just? I want to give you the, the the final word on this before we move on to billionaires in space.
1: So what I would say is that one thing that is different because data is only useful, um, and I say useful both for bad ends and good, like primarily for bad ends, it's useful when it's connected in particular ways. And what we've seen with the NHS Test and Trace app or Track and Trace app is that. The connections between, as I sort of said, you know, your 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 identity and, you know, all of the things that might come, you know, all of the other ways of marking your identity, with, you know, what exact nightclub you've been to, or what cafe you've been to, or every grocery store that you've entered into, it's that connection of those data points that provides the risk, as it were. That is not as much of an issue. You know, when you show your ID at a nightclub that's not logged in a big database system that connects the fact that you've been to that nightclub on that day and that you're also, you know, a female age 28, you know, who also has this Facebook profile and this Instagram profile and da. Do you know what I mean? So I think that there's a big difference really between showing your ID or even the track and trace app, which doesn't require you to, you know, you can put your NHS number in, but you don't have to. It can, you can just have your Bluetooth on and have exposure notifications on. Whereas in order for these vaccine passports to work, I imagine that it would have to be linking your, you know, location data to your health data, to your biometric data, to your personal uh identification and ID data and who knows if it could also be linked to things like you know national insurance or, or other things so I think that's where the risk comes here and that's where it's kind of different to to the examples that you mentioned
0: I said I was going to give you the final word I'm going to just give myself two sentences so I, <laughs> I, I would I would say that one it could be connected to all of these things it doesn't so the most simple vaccine passport would just be the NHS app as it currently is you show it to the bouncer he doesn't log it you know, how i d normally works, you just mm. you, sh- you show the thing that says "I've been vaccinated," they might you might have to scroll it briefly to show it's not just a screenshot of someone else's. then you go in. The other potential is they do try and link it. it. obviously would be useful for them to know who went to what club um so that they could trace any any outbreaks again, potentially you could see that as being a slippery slope. I also think that lockdowns and closing venues is a massive restriction on our freedom, so I don't think it's unreasonable to prefer giving over some data to the government as opposed to having nightclubs shut. But I'm going to leave that intentionally open because we're going to move on um, now to billionaires in space. Nine days after Richard Branson's first flight to the edge of space, Jeff Bezos has left and returned to the Earth's stratosphere. Bezos's company, Blue Origin, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic and Elon Musk's SpaceX are all hoping to launch a new space tourism Industry and these two flights are just two small steps in that direction. We're going to focus on Bezos's flight. So the run-up to that launch, to my mind, was particularly dystopian. Let's take a look at a TV anchor fawn over the world's richest man as he prepares to take off in his penis-shaped rocket.
5: I'm excited. You know, people keep asking if I'm nervous. I'm not it's, really nervous. You're I'm not excited. Mark. I Jeff. 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 Curious. Jeff, you're not. Nervous. I want to know what we're going to learn. Wait, Jeff. Jeff, back up no. a second. you're not. How is that
3: possible, Jeff? I'm sitting here in New York, and I'm nervous. How are you not nervous?
5: <laughs> None of us are nervous. No, we're excited. We've been training. This vehicle is ready. This crew is ready. This team is amazing. Uh, we just feel really good about it. How Dr. Evil was that? I mean, that phase, that laugh. I mean, he clearly has had lots of
0: filler. The whole thing is surreal. If We can take a look at where the rocket went. It's the phases of the flight, phase one, the capsule and the booster take off vertically. So that's I mean, this, this very powerful rocket getting it super high. Then when it is super high, this is the technical term, the capsule separates and that's 76 kilometres above Earth and then continues to about 106 kilometres above Earth. Now, apparently, people consider space to be 100 kilometres above Earth. That's called the Kármán line so once it gets up there then it's got to get back um, and the booster that's the big rocket underneath it that gets back and lands two miles from the launch pad and the capsule parachutes back to the desert floor um all very interesting all also a little bit grotesque i think space touring space tourism if it does take off will obviously be a preoccupation of only the super super rich. A seat on the first flight with Bezos sold for twenty eight million dollars. It turned out actually the guy had double booked, so he had to uh, postpone his his first flight. It was the seat was taken by an eighteen year old. It's also probably not what we need when it comes to global warming. Now, Bezos's rocket is powered by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, so it doesn't have direct carbon emissions. It could be um, a lot worse, but creating those fuels does have emissions, and even water vapour, which is what those fuels release creates, um, global warming close to the stratosphere because it hangs around there for ages. Richard Branson, who I mentioned in the introduction, his rocket is much worse environmentally because it's well, it's, it's, it's a hybrid, so half of it's um, or it's part and um, powered by carbon fuels. That's apparently 60 times more carbon intensive per person than a long-haul flight. So while we're dealing with this problem of how do we limit or regulate normal air travel between countries, which is often socially useful, really difficult conversation. Now we're going to have to do the same thing for the super rich flying around in space. Now, Bezos has a defense when it comes to the environmental impact of his rockets. He says, we need to take all heavy industry, all polluting industry, and move it into space and keep Earth as this beautiful gem of a planet that it is. It's going to take decades and decades to achieve, but you have to start, and big things start with small steps. That's what this suborbital tourism mission allows us to do. It allows us to practice over and over. Now, the argument there is on one level coherent. He's saying, you know, you might not think that the super rich flying to, just you know, just a little bit out of the stratosphere so they can look back at the curvature of the earth is a particularly socially useful thing to do, but it is this consumer product that is going to allow us to perfect the technology that will then mean we can do these totally useful things such as move heavy industry to out of space the the part that i don't get from that maybe i'm not a good enough physicist or maybe it doesn't make sense is how would heavy industry in the outer space work because the heavy industry is inherently heavy you're going to get the raw material for steel land it on the moon or a space station then sh- smelt it and everything and then you know drop loads of steel down in parachutes to the desert. I don't really get it. Dahlia, um, I don't know if you're an expert when it comes to space travel, but do you think the environmental story for why this makes sense when it comes to climate change, does it stack up for you?
1: I mean, the, the whole thing that, you know, was saying before about, you know, what is socially valuable about this, you know, that is just the central Myth of capitalism, right? Like that we need the profit incentive. We need power and wealth and resources to be centralised amongst, you know, a tiny few because you know that that will trickle down to to everyone else, right? And that, that somehow the only way that you know the little people can have good things um or have a chance of experiencing a good life is if they're trickled down on by people who are you know inherently better than them. Um, you know, we know that that's not true when it comes to actual, you know, when it comes to technological innovation, technological advances, the most revolutionary tech advances tend to actually be the ones that are funded and resourced by the public sector and made for the public, you know, like things like the light bulb, things like, you know, the World Wide Web are perfect examples of this. Whereas, you know, the the kinds of technological advances that are made in the private sphere, are things like, you know, the difference between the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8 Plus or, you know, nifty new surveillance technologies that you can use to monitor, you know, whether or not your workers are slacking for like a minute uh, so that you can deduct that from their paycheck. And this whole saying, like, let's leave the planet as it is, like, if a seven-year-old said that, if a seven-year-old said, you know, let's solve climate, why do we solve climate change by just hurling carbon-intensive industries into space... We would find it adorable and we'd laugh, but, you know, because it is laughable, but because it's being said by Jeff Bezos, we're all being forced to take this seriously and talk about it rather than actually talking about and implementing the real genuine solutions for climate change. You know, first of all, the economies and infrastructures that are created by companies like Amazon are directly part of the problem when it comes to climate breakdown, as is the lifestyles of, you know, someone like Jeff Bezos of the ultra rich, and the idea that we can, you know, while this is like super seems super ridiculous, there is still the underlying logic of what he's saying is actually incredibly prevalent amongst climate policymakers, amongst you know governments, which is this idea that. We can solve the systemic problem of climate breakdown by just continuing as we are and hoping for some kind of magical one-stop shop tech fix. Um, you know, and sometimes it sounds as fanciful and ridiculous as this. Sometimes it's, you know, something like carbon capture, which is this idea that you know we'll have the technology to suck all the carbon out of the air um, by the time it gets too bad, which you know, obviously it already is getting bad. And it's a perfect example of, you know, much actually like the vaccine passports, I would argue, a way of dealing with crisis that does everything that it possibly can to evade the systemic and obvious inst- like solutions that lie in front of our very eyes um, in order to go for the most exploitative and the most, you know, the the, the solutions that most entrench the existing inequalities that we have and actually using that crisis that is a cause of the system that we already that is a symptom of the system that we exist in as an excuse to re-entrench that system but you know and I also think that that the investment of you know and Kate Crawford writes about this really chillingly I remember reading this a few years like reading this um earlier this year and being like and now that I'm seeing all this, it's kind of dinging a lot of bells, you know, where the investment of Silicon Valley billionaires, of the ultra rich into space travel is part of a genuine sort of judgment that a lot of the ultra rich have actually made, which is that Earth is kind of done. Like they kind of look at, you know, have quite a, a good understanding of climate breakdown. It's kind of the sense that, you know, Earth is kind of doomed. So let's sort of figure out Where we can go when, and what we can do, and how we can deal with things when shit hits the fan. And, you know, as fanciful as that sounds, I don't think it quite works like that, but as fanciful as it sounds, it kind of tells us about the ideological framework that these people are operating in and the extent of the them, us kind of, you know, the little people versus us who need to be protected and who kind of deserve to have access to all these technologies that are going to keep us safe as, you know, we experience planetary crises much like the covid crisis over and over again um it kind of makes me think sometimes about how you know despite silicon despite it clearly not being possible silicon valley entrepreneurs and you know elites will talk about you know automating the entire workforce you know the uber ceo has poured loads of money into trying to come up with driverless cars and realizing that actually like no one actually can operate a taxi system and no one can actually replace the knowledge and the sort of instincts and the embodied understanding of their job the way that an Uber driver can. But if we take the fanciful sci-fi to one side, it actually gives us an insight into the ideological framework that these entrepreneurs are operating in. So for in that example, okay, they can't abolish the worker, but everything that they're doing is still looking towards abolishing the worker as a human being. So if we can't actually replace all workers with robots, let's just slowly figure out a way to just treat human workers like robots anyway. And ironically, sort to come full circle, the way that Amazon workers are treated is sort of the most pristine example of, you know, where we can't automate, we will simply just dehumanise.
0: That's very much full circle. You've got, done a brilliant segue <laughs> to our next clip, because the other reason why this is all a bit grotesque is, is because of how Jeff Bezos got rich, how he is able to afford this. And in fact, he made a joke after the launch about this. It's gone down like a cup of cold sick.
5: I also I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. <laughs> so seriously, for every Amazon customer out there and every Amazon employee, thank you from the bottom of my heart very much. Now, there was a lot of chummy
0: laughter in that room. I imagine no one invited um, to that briefing has ever pissed in a bottle or shat in a carrier bag because they had to deliver so many parcels, they didn't have time to stop for the toilet. That anecdote is from Amazon. We're going to go through um, some of the ways in which Amazon workers have paid for Jet Bezos to go into outer space, which is because he's collecting their surplus labour, he's exploiting them. And boy, does he know how to do it. I mentioned the drivers um, who are treated appallingly, apparently. This is from the BBC. They reported in 2018 the number of parcels drivers had to deliver meant they worked over the 11-hour limit for drivers. So that's uh, the law, so they don't crash into anyone. And as wages were a flat rate, they ended up being paid practically below the minimum wage. Drivers also told the BBC to meet their targets. They would regularly have to break the speed limit, so endangering themselves and others, and would resort to peeing in bottles and defecating in carrier bags. Um, that is not the end of shoddy workplace practices when it comes to Amazon. They have been taken to court by multiple women in the United States who have said Amazon failed to accommodate them once they became pregnant. Now, most of those cases were settled out of court. That's often what will happen with a huge company like this. I'm sure there were NDAs signed. Um, the way they keep it this way, what does a boss want to do if they want to exploit their workers, if they want to extract as much value as from them as possible so that they can ultimately fly off into outer space? Well, they have to be viciously anti-union and Amazon very much fulfills that role. In 2001, 850 employees in Seattle were laid off by Amazon after a unionization drive and they continue to spend millions on PR to fight unionization in the US. Um, In the US, you have a vote in a workplace as to whether to unionize, slightly different to in the UK. Dahlia. Do you think it will be any consolation to those workers who've peed in bottles and shat in bags and lost their jobs because they got pregnant that their exploitation has led to this man to have enough money to fly himself into outer space?
1: The stuff of science fiction, right? It's so dystopian. And I mean, of course not. And, and the media is so compliant in allowing this cult of the Silicon Valley billionaire to be sort of promoted uncritically. You know, from from Elon Musk being hailed as a savior for providing ventilators during the pandemic, which it turns out they weren't actually ventilators and there were barely any of them anyway. Um, to, you know, Jeff Bezos being portrayed as some, you know, he's so rich because he's just such a genius and such a forward thinker, rather than there's just no bottom that he's willing to kind of hit when it comes to workers rights and the dehumanization of workers. And I think it's so, you know, and you can see the compliancy um, in the kind of media through the way that they're laughing and the way that, you know, these the journalists have been treating and talking about um, and, in, and and approaching him when interviewing him about this this kind of uh, fake space travel, because they didn't go to space. They went in a really high plane. I just want to kind of point that out. Um, but it's, it's mm. ironic that, you know, Bezos himself, um, who in his own sort of delusion of how much he can get away with, actually said what journalists who interview him are probably too afraid to say to him, which is that Amazon workers from, you know, warehouse workers to delivery workers who are, as I said before, treated like machines, who are precarious, who are monitored and surveilled and disciplined to the most invasive degree, who are, you know, those are the ones that create Bezos' wealth, not him. And, you know, that wealth generation, not it's not incidental. It, wealth generation to that degree relies on those very conditions. Those aren't sort of, bugs They're not accidents. They're not just sort of lack of optimization. That's actually, you know, the the very conditions that are necessary in order to produce the wealth generation that someone like Jeff Bezos um, is able to accumulate. One doesn't happen without the other. Uh, And yet, if you were to watch the footage from this coverage, you know, you would think that this was just, you know, the most genius man who, you know, has developed some kind of incredible uh, technology that has solved all of humanity's problems and not touched a fly or harmed a fly in the process of it. And now, you know, as a reward for that, he gets to fly into space. Uh, That's obviously not what is happening. But one thing that you won't hear um, and one person that won't be interviewed Um, are those very Amazon workers who are peeing in bottles. And even if they're not peeing in bottles, who are in their everyday working conditions, being treated like robots, being treated like less than human. Uh, Those are the voices that you won't hear um, in this kind of celebration of of this billionaire cult.
0: Dahlia, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you on this Wednesday evening.
1: Thanks for having me. Now, I can't wait to open my window and stick my head out because I'm boiling hot under this light.
0: I am exactly the same. Oh my god! You can see the shine on my forehead. Probably. Uh, thank you again for watching. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia slash support.